You know, we sang, um, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. And there's that verse in there that says, um, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, far surpassing all, of, all the rest. It's an ocean full of blessing in the midst of every test. And I want, I, the reason why I was, as I was singing that, I couldn't help thinking of my grandmother. And um, I'm thankful she's here this morning, but uh, she is undergoing cancer at the time. And, I, and I'm just seeing so much of the Lord's work in her life through that. So I love you and um, praise God for what he's doing in you and how that, uh, and it's an encouragement. So many of you have seen that in, in others' lives as, they, as we go through trials, but to see God's sustaining love and grace is so encouraging. So um, the Lord is at work. Mark 10 today. We've seen that Jesus calls us to follow him, which involves denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and by so doing, we will positively save our lives, that is, experience true life here on earth and heaven when we die, but negatively, we will also avoid losing our lives by denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Jesus, both experiencing, by not experiencing the progressive shrinking of soul that comes from trying to avoid the cross, but also avoiding hell by taking up our cross and following Jesus as well. We saw last week that Jesus calls us to listen to him, learn from him, and lean on him. Today we will continue looking at what it means to follow Jesus because in Mark chapter 9 and specifically chapter 10 today, he's continuing his lessons on the road to Jerusalem. In other words, what he's doing is he's getting ready to head to the cross. Next week we begin his entry into Jerusalem. And from there it's straight to the cross. But he's still instructing his disciples. He's still teaching them what it will mean, what it will cost them to follow him. Mark 10 is full of references to this in verse 10, verse 13, verse 23, verse 24, verse 27, verse 28, 32, 35, 36, 46, 52. Just shot through this chapter is this emphasis on the disciples, the disciples, the disciples. And the disciples said, and he taught the disciples, and he showed the disciples this. So he's teaching his followers what it's going to mean to follow him. Here's the dominant emphasis of this chapter. The dominant emphasis of this text is that you have this radical difference between the conventional values of the society of Jesus' day, what they were expecting of the Messiah and his followers, and the progressive new perspective that's coming as a result of the kingdom of God. So you're going to see these polarities throughout the chapter, this last will be first and first will be last. You just see this all the way through the chapter, and I hope that's something that we'll be able to recognize more and more as we move through the text this morning. I want us to notice five things this morning in this passage about what it means to follow Jesus, what we must do, who we must be as we follow Jesus. And there are five RSs. So the first word will start with an R, the second word will start with an S. hope that will help us remember it a little bit. First thing is to recognize sin. To recognize sin, and that's in verses 10 through 12, or 1 through 12. Uh, the passage here, Jesus begins teaching on divorce, which is a really weird thing. He said nothing about marriage up to this point. Mark has not talked about marriage at all. And all of a sudden, we have this account of divorce. We have this discussion with the Pharisees of divorce. Why in the world does an account on divorce show up right here in Mark's Gospel? Well, we can't know for sure. Context does give us some clues. And I want you to look back just in the previous chapter, beginning at verse 42. You'll remember from last week, Jesus is talking about sin, He said in verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone hung around his neck. Verse 43, if your right hand causes you to sin. Verse 45, if your foot causes you to sin. Verse 47, if your eye causes you to sin. This emphasis on sin. And then in the very next verse, following this account on sin, he begins to talk about one of the ways we know that sin is in the world, which is Divorce. Divorce is a sensitive subject, but this much we do know and this much experience teaches us. Divorce always happens because sin is in the world. 
Were there no sin in the world, were, were, were we not living in a world that was fallen and under the curse, there would be no marital breakdown. There would be no divorce. And Jesus begins to have this discussion with the Pharisees as they come up to him in verse 2 and ask him a specific question. They say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, you must understand at this time, the Pharisees have such a low view of marriage. The Jews have such a low view of marriage that Jesus is right now going to respond with, with, a, with a, basically some teaching on what God originally instituted for marriage in the very beginning. And he's going to basically blow their minds. Look at verse 2. He says, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered, What did Moses command you? Now, that's a slightly different answer to the question. The question was, Does the law permit us to divorce? And he said, What did Moses say? What did Moses command? And then they said, Well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. What are the Pharisees doing with sin here? They are seeing how far they can get with not breaking the law of God. How far can we go in sin, and or how far can we go to keep the letter of the law but not sin? This whole allowance mentality. How far are we allowed? Disciples of Christ don't ask those kind of questions. Disciples of Jesus don't wonder how much is allowed before they're committing, they're breaking the law of God. They ask the question, what does God command? What does God require? They're interested in what God wants, not just what he permits. So it's not just avoiding a negative, it's doing a positive. It's not just avoiding divorce, it's being faithful in marriage and loving your spouse. No one who follows Jesus can be careless about sin. People who follow Jesus must hate sin. We must not be like the Pharisees. We must not try to avoid God's commands and not make excuses for why we don't keep them. Now notice what Jesus' primary interest is here. He's interested in, in not, not answering the question, how far can I go and still be righteous? Rather, his interest is in restoring men to the lifestyle for which they had been made. Notice verse 5. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Now, now notice that. He says the reason why Moses had to say that in the first place and permit divorce in Deuteronomy chapter 24, which is what they're referring to here, the reason why he had to permit divorce is because there's such a thing as hardness of heart in the world. There is such a thing as sin in the world that affects the human heart. We've already seen that sin affects the human heart in Mark chapter 7. Out of the heart flow all these sins. So Jesus is taking that teaching again and applying it here to the issue of divorce and remarriage. And now he paints the picture that God had at the beginning in verse 6. From the beginning of creation... God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, quoting Genesis 2:24. And they shall become one flesh. And they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, don't let any man separate. He's not teaching any new teaching. He's teaching straight out of Genesis chapter 2. This was God's idea in the very beginning. The reason the Pharisees found this so unpalatable and so difficult to hear was because their hearts were so hardened against God and His law. Now, we see the disciples' reaction to this in verse 10. In the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter because they heard what he said. And he said to them, Well, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Pretty straightforward, right? Now, you may have read this passage before and said, Well, isn't there teaching in the Bible that there's permission to divorce for adultery and, and, and abandonment and these kind of things. Well, here, let me say this. I'm not going to answer that question this morning because it would eat up way too much time. If you want to know more about it, you're welcome to ask me or any of the pastors after, after, that, after the sermon's over. But um, suffice it to say, Jesus is stressing here the permanence and inviolability of marriage. That's his emphasis. It's a bond that God intended for life. That's his stress here in this passage without answering all of the what-ifs. The intent of Jesus, however, is not to shackle those who have had a divorce with debilitating guilt. So if you're here and you've been divorced, the question is not whether God will forgive you because of your failures in marriage. Rather, we are assured of that in Mark 3.28. Mark 3.28 says, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven. 
this falls under a category of sin. Whether or not it was primarily your fault, whether or not it was primarily the fault of your spouse is not the issue. Sin broke your marriage. And the question um, is, will God forgive you? Yes, of course. And you must, if you have been divorced, you must not think of yourself as, that's my identity. I'm divorced. No, you're not. Your identity is a daughter of God. Your identity is a son of God. Your identity is not that you've been divorced. So don't let this teaching shackle you with guilt and condemnation as a result of that. That's one sin among many sins that have affected all of our lives and that have wreaked havoc on all of our relationships. There is redemption, there is forgiveness, there is restoration, there is hope for you. So don't, don't, please don't hear this sermon as, as an attack on you in any, in any way. The question in our day, however, is with, with all of our impermanent commitments and all of our no-fault, casual divorce culture that we live in, is we need to hear Jesus on this. We need to know that Christians bear the unique call of Christ to discipleship and marriage. And that means Christians take their marriage, as well as all the other areas of their life, under the umbrella of the Lordship of Christ, and they are serious, committed to God's vision for marriage. God's vision of permanent companionship, God's vision of oneness. They committed themselves to what God intended and commanded by Christ. So let me ask you this question. Will you fall away when trouble and difficulty comes in your marriage, or will you follow Jesus on the costly journey of discipleship even in your marriage? Because here in this text, we see that we need to recognize sin. Sin is after your marriage. Sin within your own heart, remaining sin within your own heart, is after your marriage, if you're married. And we need to recognize that we can fall victim to hardness of heart and fall into divorce just as easily. And we need to guard ourselves, watch ourselves, be aware of that, recognize sin, not fall into this casual mentality towards sin that the Pharisees fell into here. But we must, take, we must follow the example of Christ, take God's Word very seriously, recognize what the purpose of marriage is all about, recognize the permanence of marriage, and give ourselves wholeheartedly to upholding that institution as God designed it. So that's a part of our discipleship as well. Number two, not only rescuing, or rec, sorry, not only recognizing sin, but we also must receive salvation. Receive salvation. Verses 13 through 16. And they were bringing children to him, that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuke them. Now, why are the disciples rebuking the children? Well, we don't know exactly, but we do know this much. Children in Jesus' day had no standing in society. They were in some ways considered a necessary obligation. They weren't considered to be a nuisance, but they were an obligation to the family. If they received anything, if children received anything in Jesus' day, it could only be on the basis of gift and kindness. It couldn't be on the basis of anything that they presently possessed or any rights that they had. Similarly, Jesus is going to use them as an object lesson now about what it means to receive salvation, what it means to receive the kingdom. Notice in verse 14, when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. He was angry with the disciples. The disciples are acting like the Pharisees here. They are acting like they are rebuking those that Jesus would receive. That's what Pharisees do. You know, the, the Pharisees rebuked the sinners that Jesus hung out with and rebuked Jesus for hanging out with them. This is what the disciples are doing. No, we're not going to spend time with these children. But Jesus says to them, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them. Don't rebuke them. Don't try to keep them from coming. For such belongs the kingdom of God. Don't keep them from me because I belong to them and they belong to me. Don't hold them back from me because my kingdom is for them. And then he teaches what he means by that in verse 15. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, that is receiving salvation, receiving the forgiveness of sins, receiving a part in God's kingdom, coming under God's rule, coming into the kingdom of God. Whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child will not enter it. Now he's turning 
their perspective and their their basically their assumptions on its head because they assumed that it's not the helpless that get the kingdom rather it's those who have earned it it's those who have worked for it it's those who have tried hard and obeyed and done the things that God required of them to do that receive the kingdom but what Jesus is teaching here is that if we want to go to heaven it's going to be like a child it's going to be like a child that accepts God's gift it's not going to be like a proud person who 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 shows God what they've done proud people cannot get to heaven people who think they're important cannot get to heaven we must be like children to get to heaven. So how do we get to heaven then? Well, verse 15 tells us, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child shall not enter it. So we get to, we get to heaven like a child. Well, what does that mean? Well, go back to what I said about the standing that children have in society. If we are to receive anything, it cannot be on the basis of our present rights, but only as a gift. That's Jesus' emphasis here. Similarly, if any of us is to receive the kingdom of God, it must come to us as a completely unmerited, free gift from God. Not based on our works. It is a gift, not a right. It is grace, not earned by our qualifications. In this story, children are not blessed for their virtues. They are blessed for what they lack. They are blessed by Jesus, not because what they can give to Jesus, but because of what Jesus is willing to give them based on their helplessness. So children come as they are. They're small, they're powerless, they're weak, they're without sophistication, they're overlooked, they're the dispossessed of society. To receive the kingdom of God then is to receive it as one who has nothing to bring and whatever a child receives, he or she receives it on the basis of grace out of sheer neediness and helplessness. That is how we enter the kingdom. So if you're here and you're questioning whether or not you have entered the kingdom of God or not, whether or not you're a Christian, whether or not you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you ask yourself this question. Deep down in your heart, are you still fundamentally thinking that God loves you and accepts you based on what you do for God? Because if you're not, you're very far away from the kingdom. You're not in the kingdom. Now, Christians all struggle with that. We all struggle within our hearts with this default mode of religion in our own hearts, which is we wake up in the morning and we will operate on the performance mentality. We will operate on the mentality of, I do for God, therefore God blesses me. I obey God, therefore God loves me. And we have to, as Christians, continually recalibrate our hearts because the default mode is that. And we have to train it and program it to, no, I obey, therefore I'm, not I obey, therefore I'm accepted, but I'm accepted, therefore I obey. That's how we have to train our hearts. So we still struggle with that, but, 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 the, but what Jesus is teaching here is that to follow him is, a, is from a position of neediness and helplessness, not from a position of, oh, I'm going to follow Jesus so I can show all the things that I can do for him, so that he'll like me, so that he'll show me, how, so that I'll, I'll feel like I'm contributing something to him. Listen, we don't contribute anything to him. All that we have, we have by grace. All that we do, we do by grace. So we are a part of the kingdom if we are a helpless, small, without sophistication, needy bunch of people. Isn't that great news? That's great news. That's great news. Because it, 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 Jesus is coming to you saying, listen, it's not about what you can do for me. It's not about how much I need you. It's about will you receive me like a child? Will you humble yourself? Will you renounce all your goodness? Will you renounce all your merit? Will you renounce all your, but I did this, therefore you must love me? Will you get rid of that? Will you lay that down? And if you will, if you'll receive it like a gift, Jesus will give it to you. But that's hard. That takes grace to humble yourself like that, to, to, to stop saying all that I do for God is what, it, is what gets God to like me. Rather, all that Jesus has done for me is what gets God to like me and accept me and love me, not to, br to bring me into his family, to reconcile me to myself. It's, it's, all, it's all that Jesus has done, we receive it. So that's another mark of a follower. Not only do we recognize sin, but we receive salvation, not try to work for it. Number three, we renounce 
substitutes. We renounce, that is reject, get rid of, throw off, substitutes. Now, Jesus just told us how to enter heaven, right? He just told us about how to get into the kingdom. And now he's going to give an illustration of somebody who didn't get into the kingdom because he was unwilling to receive it like a little child. It's the rich young ruler. Verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Class, what's wrong with that question? Based on what we just read and what we just learned. He's not coming into the kingdom like a little child. He's not coming into the kingdom like a little helpless baby. He's coming in doing one of two things. Number one, he's looking to add Jesus to his already impressive resume. Jesus doesn't get added to anybody. He's looking to add him. What must I do? I've got all this stuff. Now what must I do? There's still something lacking. So what do I need to tack on here to get eternal life? And he assumes that he can do it. He assumes that it's by works. He assumes that it's by what he does for Jesus that gets him eternal life. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And his assumption is, you're not either. So good teacher, what must I do to, eternal, to gain eternal life? He says, why do you call me good? But you've got a goodness problem here, buddy. You've got a real goodness problem. No one's good except God alone. You think you are, but you're not. Because I just told you that no one's good except God. So everybody who thinks they're good is deceived. Because no one's good except God. Relatively speaking, when we think of God's goodness and our goodness. So this man's problem is not that he's too rich. That's one of his problems, because he loves his wealth. But his first problem is not that he's too rich. His first problem is that he thinks he's too good. That's his first fundamental problem. So if we think we're almost good enough, and all we need is a little bit, little something else from Jesus, then we are a very, very, very long way from God. Imagine with me that you're climbing up a ladder, say set a, set a ladder on, your, on the side of your house, and you've got to go fix some shingles or whatever on the top of your roof. And uh, you're climbing the ladder, something you want, to, you want to get up there and start working on your roof. And you're nearly at the top. You've reached like the third or fourth rung from the top. And a friend shouts, Hey man, you can only reach the top if you come down to the bottom. You'd never believe him. Say, I can only reach the top if I come all the way down the ladder and get in the bottom rung. But this is the way this man is thinking. That's the way he hears Jesus. You mean I can only get to the top by coming down to the bottom? What? He thinks he's almost at the top. And then Jesus says, listen, I will tell you how to reach heaven. Get on down to the bottom. Sell everything you have. Get rid of it all. Come follow me. That will not take him up to the top. That will not take him up to the top of the ladder. Rather, it's what it's going to do is take him right down to the bottom of the ladder. And he'll have to become like a little child. Because Jesus is ripping out the idol of his heart right now. He's exposing what he really trusts in. He's exposing what he's really looking to to be his salvation, which is his money. And this is the scary thing. James Edwards says, A person who leads an exemplary life, who even endears himself to the Son of God, can still be an idolater. A person right now, maybe there's some of, some of us here, you lead an exemplary life. You, are, you have an affection for the Son of God. But deep down in your heart of hearts, is there really something else that you're looking and resting on as more fundamental to your happiness than Jesus Christ? That if God were to walk up to you right now and say, no, not ever, that you would say, then I'm not following you. We cannot have that if we're going to follow Jesus. 
Because Jesus is going to mess with your life and he's going to start taking stuff from you. He will come to you if you if he senses and he knows your heart better than you do. If you are looking to anything other than him to provide what only he can provide for you, which is security and hope and purpose and joy and forgiveness and righteousness and all those things, looking for something else, he will come to you and he is committed by his grace to smash that in your life. And all of us who have been Christians for any period of time have experienced that. We've experienced the idol-smashing grace of Jesus Christ. And it is an incredibly painful experience. It is difficult. It is hard. It feels like he's ripping something out of you. And he is. Our sin is deep in us, brothers and sisters. And God has to come in severe mercy sometimes and tear it away from us. But isn't he loving? And isn't he committed to our everlasting well-being to come in and do that for us? When he, when the, when the, when the, the when love, when what we think love is, is leaving people and just saying, oh, they'll learn. No, love, the love of God moves in to a person's life and rescues and rescues and rescues and rescues. You need to see this as the love of God for you. If this is at work in your life, if this ongoing recognition of idolatry and ongoing re- recognition of substitute saviors that you're looking to and other things you're looking to is more fundamental to your happiness than Jesus Christ, if you're experiencing that on an ongoing basis, you are an object of so much love from God, you have no idea. God is committed to you, and He's working in you and working in you and working on you and working on you. The worst thing that can happen is what happens in verse 22 after Jesus gives him the command to sell everything he has, which is disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. That's the worst thing. And the great thing is that God will not let that happen to his people. He will not. Disciples of Jesus renounce substitutes. They let go of everything that would cause them to not be a disciple that would cause them to not faithfully follow Jesus, that would cause them to not let Jesus have all of their heart. They are willing to let Jesus touch anything. They don't, they don't come to Jesus with a both-and Christianity. They don't come to Jesus saying, I want you as long as you let me still have this. As long as you'll let me still keep these things and enjoy these things. But Jesus comes and says, no, I will be all or I will be nothing. And the true disciple says what Peter says. We'll keep reading. Verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, we need to hear that, brothers and sisters. We need to hear that. We live better than 95% of the world does. We are rich and wealthy. And, And you need to know this. If we are going to be saved, God is going to do some serious stuff with our money. He's going to be at work on that relentlessly in our lives. And we need to see ourselves growing in generosity, in liberality. If you see yourself being more and more prone to to hoard, to keep back, to withhold from Jesus... Be very afraid. You may fall right in verse 23. How difficult it will be for those. We're going to have a difficult life because God has given us money. And he's given it to steward us, and just for us to steward to him. And it can be a great blessing and a great usefulness. It's not wrong to have wealth, but it's difficult to have wealth. That's Jesus' assumption. And he's going to work on us. So we're, we're, we're going to have him, him work on us in this life, specifically with regard to wealth. And the disciples are amazed at, this, at his words, verse 24. Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. And then he gives kind of a joke. They, would have, they might have chuckled a little bit because of how ridiculous it sounds. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So they got a needle here. Got a camel. A camel! And a needle. If I held up a needle, you guys couldn't even see it. And he says, it's going to be easier for that big camel to get through that 
than for a rich person to get into heaven. Camel, needle, harder than that for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And of course the disciples are astonished and said to him, who can be saved? No way camel's getting through the eye of a needle. This is impossible. You see, he's he's trying to bring them to childlikeness. You see what he's doing? Jesus is teaching his disciples to be children, to feel helpless, to feel needy. Who can be saved? Who can be saved? Who can? That's the way he wants them to feel. He's trying to bring. He's trying to show them. He's he's teaching them what they were rebuking earlier. They're rebuking children, and then he tells them. And then he gives them an object lesson right in front of them with the rich young ruler and brings them to a recognition of their own childishness, their own childlikeness, that they can't do it. And then Jesus says in verse 27, listen, yeah, if it were up to man to get into the kingdom of God, if it were up to man to leave his security of wealth, if it were up to man to renounce his substitute saviors, yeah, he's not going to heaven. (laughs) Jesus was a Calvinist. If it were up to man to leave this, it would be impossible. It is impossible with man to enter the kingdom of God like a little child. It is impossible with man. Impossible. Impossible. Say, I'm the exception. No, you're not. You're in the impossible. We're all in the impossible. But, here's the good news, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. What's his point? Anybody that gets into the kingdom that is willing to, to receive salvation like a little child, that is willing to recognize their sin, that is willing to renounce all their substitutes, you know who did that in their life? God did that in their life. God did that in that person's life. So don't go up to your religious family member who's walking with Jesus and say, Oh, I'm so glad you've turned over a new leaf. I'm so glad you're doing good now. If they're thinking right, they should say, listen, with man, this was impossible. I am an impossibility. I am a miracle. And the fact that I'm following Jesus at all is owing to the grace of God. It's owing to the free kindness and the possibility of God. Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything to follow you. Now Peter goes back into a little bit of self-pity again. He doesn't quite understand what Jesus has just said about man being impossible and God everything. He's still stuck on the who can be saved, and he's still thinking he might not be. And He looks at Jesus and he says, listen, Jesus, what more can we give up for you? We've renounced everything. We've, re- we've given it all up. We've walked away from trusting in our business and our family, and we've followed you. And then Jesus gives him the most wonderful promises in some ways in the entire gospel. And he says, listen, you haven't left anything for me. And I preached on this a couple of weeks ago, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. You haven't left anything for me that I'm not going to repay you in this life and in the age to come. So keep following me. I will take care of you. you will have, it's going to be a mixed bag in this life. He said, you're going to receive a new family, the church. You're going to receive a new house, a new, not physically. He's talking about an, his presence and new blessing and, new, and, and a new family to be a part of saying, I've left house, mother, sister, brothers. He's like, you're going to get that back in the church. You will have that. But it's going to be with persecution. It's going to come at a cost to you. But it's going to be well worth the cost because I'm going to repay you in this time. And in the age to come, I'm going to give you eternal life. Many who are first will be last and the last first. So he just he flipped their assumptions again. So we must, we must renounce substitutes. Here's what Sinclair Ferguson says. And then we're going to move on. His life, this rich young ruler's life, is still centered on himself rather than on the kingdom of God. He had outwardly kept the commandments, but there was a God in his life which he prized more than the knowledge of God, which was he had great wealth. Sadly, with his heart deception now unveiled, he turned round and went back to the idol worship from which he had almost escaped. He turned back to the idol worship from which he had almost escaped. I fear that. Some of you maybe who are regular visitors here but have not yet come, come out 
and and joined Jesus and said, I'm 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 with Jesus. I'm gonna I'm gonna be a follower of His. I'm gonna I'm gonna talk to some people. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna receive Christ. I'm gonna repent of my sin. I'm gonna become a Christian. I'm gonna get baptized. I'm gonna join the church. All that. You're still kind of you are so close right now. And I'm just saying, don't rest right now. Because so many people get this close and go right back to their idol worship. They'll go right back. So heed the example of the rich young ruler. Don't walk away when God has, God has taught you and brought you close. Only now, Sinclair Ferguson continues, only now the man leaves knowing more truth about himself. He was a man who had great wealth and was not willing to take the, quote, risk of faith by leaving it for the sake of greater wealth. What was his mistake? He didn't see the greater wealth that was standing right in front of him in the person of Jesus Christ. Did you know what? You know what? Moses saw that. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says this. Hebrews 11 is talking about Moses, and it's talking about um, how describing he's in this hall of faith category. Uh, Hebrews 11 is all about these heroes of our faith. And Moses is this. Moses is growing up in the palace in the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he has everything. And he gets this call from God to forsake all this and go to take care of God's people in Egypt and rescue them from bondage. This is a costly mission. This is leaving everything behind. This is renouncing all his substitute securities. And what does the Bible tell us that was the motivation for why he was able to do that? It says in Hebrews 11, he said, When Moses considered all the treasures of Egypt, he looked not at those treasures, but he looked to the future. He looked to the greater reward that would come as a result of his obedience. And he said he was able to do that because he was looking ahead to the reward. He was able to forsake all those securities, all those treasures, for the sake of a greater reward that he saw in Christ. So if you're struggling with renouncing substitute securities, and you're struggling with renouncing things that Jesus has put his finger on and said, let it go, the, the issue is not, not to focus on what he's calling you to let go. The issue is to focus on who he is and what he is promising you if you do let it go. That's where the battle is, and that's where we have to focus. Number four. Request service. Request service. Verse 32, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed him were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Now this is the third time in this gospel that Jesus has told what's going to happen to him when they get up to Jerusalem. Verse 33 saying, we're, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Now, he's just filled in a lot more details than he gave in the previous two announcements of that. In Mark chapter 8 and in Mark chapter 9, Jesus makes the same announcement. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to, be rise, I'm going to rise again. But he says here all the details of how that's going to happen. He says, the scribes are going to take me into custody, they're going to deliver me over to Gentile rulers, and I'm going to be spit upon, flogged, mocked, and killed. He's getting specific. Jesus Christ knows exactly what's going to happen to him on the cross. He knows exactly what's going to happen to him, and he's embracing it. He's modeling service. He's modeling verse 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what the cross is all about. Jesus Christ coming into the world to die to give his life to pay our sin debt. To pay God for our offenses against him. The, the debt that we owe to the justice of God is being paid in the death of Jesus Christ for those who believe. And now James and John come to him in verse 35. And they don't request service, they request superiority. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. This is not a discipleship question, is it? 
Who's the master here? Who's the Lord? Who's the king? Isn't this us, brothers and sisters? This is us. We see ourselves in these men so, so much. We want you to do for us whatever we ask you, Jesus. You're, you're the genie in the bottle. Verse 36, And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, We want fame. We want power. We want position. You took us on that Mount of Transfiguration. Remember Moses and Elijah by you? We want to be there! Moses and Elijah put them, we want there. Give us that spot. And they said to him, let us sit there. One at your right hand, one at your left in glory. We saw it. We saw it. Verse 38, Jesus said, you have no idea what you're talking about. That's a faithful word from our Savior. Aren't you thankful that God doesn't answer all your requests in prayer? God often has to come to us and say, you know, we come, to him, we come to God, right? Do for me whatever I ask of you, please, God. And God looks back at us and says, you have no idea what you're asking. You have no idea. If I were to answer that prayer, you would be so miserable. If I were to answer that prayer, that would invite so much destruction into your life. If I were to answer that prayer, that would send you to hell. No, no, I'm not going to answer that prayer. That's grace. It's very gracious of God not to answer our prayers sometimes. And we see that here. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said, we're able. Now, you all understand. We're well taught as a church. You understand what he, that cup he's talking about, right? He's talking about the cup of God's wrath that he's going to drink on the cross. And the baptism that he's referring to is the baptism in blood, for lack of a better word, that he's going to undergo when he pays for our sins. The baptism of death. And they look at that, they don't understand that. They don't understand, I mean, they could have said, <laughs> I mean, Peter, James and John are just sitting here, and they're, they're, he's looking at them, and he's like, we want to sit at your right hand in glory. And they said, listen, you don't know what you're asking. He says, well, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup and be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? And they just look at him and say, you know, you can imagine James and John saying, we don't know where he's talking about. But we're able to do that, Jesus, because we want that position. We don't know what he's referring to. They don't, they don't have a clue what he's talking about. He says, we're able. And Jesus recognizes their ignorance. He recognizes, listen, they don't, they don't know what they're talking about. Jesus said to them, listen, the cup that I, that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you're going to be baptized with that. You're going to have to drink a cup, and you're going to have to undergo a baptism in following me. You're going to have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me too. You're going to have to understand my sufferings too. You're going to, under, you're going to understand that. But to sit at my right hand is not up to me. That's up to my Father in heaven. It's for those who have been, for whom it has been prepared. And then we get this little funny situation where the disciples come back and start slapping these guys. Verse 41, and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now, we don't know why they're indignant. They could have said, man, we wanted that position. But chances are they probably came to him and started slapping him and saying, you idiot, what are you, that's not the time to talk about this right now. He just said he's going to go be flog-mocked and spit upon. Don't be asking for your position. And then Jesus calls them and says, here's what you should have requested. You should have requested, let me be like you, Jesus. Let me be a servant of all. The economy of the kingdom of God is not based on power and control. It's on service and giving. How easily worship and discipleship are blended with self-interest. How easily we see dis these disciples... This blending of self-interest with their discipleship, but worse yet, how dangerous it is when self-interest is masked as worship and discipleship. The way of the kingdom is different from the way of the world. In the kingdom of God, true greatness is measured by our service, not by the number of our servants. And I want those of you who are servant-hearted to be encouraged by that. 
True greatness is measured by our service, not by the number of our servants. That's the world's way of thinking. You're great. How many people do you have working for you? Jesus says, you want to know who the truly great is? How many people are you working for? Ask yourself right now, who, who, how many people am I laying my life down for? True greatness is seen not in how high up the ladder we climb, but how far down the ladder we climb for the sake of lifting others up the ladder. True discipleship has at its heart letting go of our desire for honor from the world in order to bestow honor on others. So that's what Jesus is after. We must request service. And finally and quickly, number five, we must regain sight. Regain sight. Sinclair Ferguson describes the healing of blind Bartimaeus as the penultimate miracle in Mark's gospel. No miracle more vividly illustrates the promise God has given through the prophet Joel than this one. What's the promise that God gave to the prophet Joel? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's what happens right here with Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. Now, I don't have time to read the text again, but let me give you a, a few things about this in, in light of this last point about discipleship. The kingdom of heaven is not for the well-meaning. It's not for those who, well, we tried, well, we wanted to, but couldn't. One thing we learned from this is there is nothing that's keeping this guy back from getting to Jesus. There is absolutely nothing that will keep him from getting to Jesus. And that's the mark of a disciple. A true Christian is, can't be kept from Jesus. Bartimaeus brought nothing but his need. And there is no other way to come to Jesus but on the basis of our need and his adequacy to meet our needs. Now, let me say this about our encouraging, encouraging word about our Savior here. If you want Jesus to come to your life, he has time for you. If you want Jesus, he has time for you. He still stops to hear those who call on him, and he listens to our prayers for help. So kids, Jesus will stop and listen to you if you want to talk to him. And specifically, if you want to talk to him about him being your Savior and Lord, and him saving you from your sin. In humble trust... Bartimaeus does not ask for what the disciples ask, right? Bartimaeus gets the same question from Jesus, doesn't he? What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? It's the same question the disciples just asked him. And Bartimaeus doesn't ask for wealth, power, success. He doesn't ask for any of those things, does he? What does he ask for? Sight. He wants to see. Jesus, being a disciple means, God, I want to see the way life really is. I want to get outside of this matrix world that's got me so deceived and so tricked, and I don't know what's right. All I want to do is see what's true. If you come to Jesus like that, saying, Jesus, touch my eyes and help me to see like you do, help me to see you, he will grant you sight. He asks, Bartimaeus doesn't ask, he doesn't say, Jesus, I want to be superhuman, like the disciples ask. He asks, I want to be simply human. I want to be human. And Jesus transforms this man on the spot. And notice the way it begins and the way it ends. Verse 46, And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. we got a beggar on the side of the road. What do we have at the end? And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Jesus transformed Bartimaeus from a beggar beside the road to a disciple on the road. Faith that does not lead to discipleship is not saving faith. Faith that does not get you off the roadside and on the road is not saving. You say, I'm, I'm saved, but I'm not a disciple. No, you're not. You were not saved. 
If you're on the road with Jesus right now, walking with him, following Jesus along the road, just like Bartimaeus did, you are a disciple of Jesus. Well, we've learned a lot this morning and, and been reminded of a lot of things. To be a disciple, we must recognize our sin. We must receive salvation. We must renounce substitutes. We must request service. And we must regain our sight. Let's pray. Father, we are so aware in light of a passage like this that we've just considered of how desperately needy we are for Jesus. We, we, need, we need to see our sin. We need, to, we need to be more humble. We need to be more serving. We need to be more devoted to you. We recognize, Lord Jesus, that all that doesn't ultimately come from focusing on all the areas we need to grow all those areas that I just described, but we need to focus on 1045, Mark 1045. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Lord Jesus, you gave your life. You gave your life. You surrendered the glories of heaven. You left your Father's physical presence. You descended into a sin-cursed world and you died in our place for our sins. And we, we need to focus there because as we focus there, look there, think there, we'll be set free. We'll be set free to serve. We'll be set free from all our substitute securities. We'll be set free from guilt and debilitating guilt about our sin. We'll be set free to walk with you as a child of God. That's what I pray would happen. In Jesus' name, amen.